talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into the multiverse for a look at X-Men First Class, part of 20th Century Fox's series of X-Men films originally released in June 2011. Technically this places it somewhere between Darcy Lewis and some S.H.I.E.L.D. agents opening a portal in an unsuccessful bid to contact Thor and Lance Hunter arriving in Sierra Leone and you guessed it there's absolutely no crossover with either of them. I'm Tim Worthington, and we've finally got what I thought of X-Men First Class shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give his thoughts on X-Men First Class is quiz expert David Smith. David, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at, at DVDSmith. I'm on Twitch and YouTube at the same username, playing video games. And you'll also find me out in my back garden trying to move my neighbour's satellite dishes with my mind. OK, so before we go any further, David, what happens in X-Men First Class? X-Men First Class takes us right back to the beginning of the X-Men timeline. Well, not quite, because obviously we had X-Men Origins Wolverine before that, and well, not quite, because we had X-Men Apocalypse way before that, but this takes us to the characters that we know and love. Well... I say love. This takes us to the early days of Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher, or Professor X and Magneto, as people know them, along with younger versions of some of the characters that we know from the earlier X-Men films involving Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen and gang. This takes place in 1962, in which Charles Xavier is a young professor playboy, or playboy professor rather, at Oxford University with his adopted sister Raven, Mystique, who, who just burglarises his house one day, and so he adopts her because that's what we do with all our burglars. It also stars Eric Lenscher, who is hunting down Nazis for killing his mother during his time as a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camps. And when he was in these camps, he was tortured by a man whose name was Klaus Schmidt, who he is trying to hunt down in the 60s for killing his mother. And his name has been changed to Sebastian Shaw. And this is Sebastian Shaw before he starred in Return of the Jedi as Anakin Skywalker, who is trying to cause a nuclear war between the USA and Russia because radiation has been linked to the rise of the mutants. And he does this by hijacking the Cuban Missile Crisis to try and start a nuclear war. Charles Xavier and Eric Lencher get together to try and stop him with a Ocean's Eleven style recruitment montage, getting as many mutants together as they can, including the greatest cinematic cameo of all time. And then they follow this up with a Rocky style training montage to get them all ready and so they form the first set of X-Men. And the story continues from there. Okay, well you've already kind of answered this in your plot summary there, but David, how much did you know about the X-Men before you saw X-Men First Class? I'd seen almost every film before this and I'd seen the 90s cartoon show, so I'd seen, I think I'd seen X-Men 2 first and then went back and watched X-Men 1, then I went to see X-Men 3 in the cinema and then was quite disappointed by X-Men 3 or X-Men The Last Stand as it's known and didn't go and watch X-Men Origins Wolverine because I heard not very good things. So when I went 
to see this film. I went to see it with a friend when it came out and we were literally going to see it to kill an afternoon. It was our final year of university. We just finished our exams and we had nothing to do. So we thought we'll go and see X-Men just for something to do. It's probably not going to be very good, but sure, why not? And then we watched the entire thing in rapt silence. The film finished and we both just turned to each other at the same time in the cinema and went, that was awesome! In full falsetto like that and could not believe how good this film was. I think this is my favourite X-Men film, although Days of Future Past I really like as well. And watching it again recently, it's just, it holds up so much. It's directed by Matthew Vaughn, who would go on to do the Kingsman films. And you can see why. He's got an eye for action sequences and stuff like that. It's just, it's such a good film. Yes, it really is. Because I've mentioned on here before a couple of times that I don't think I'm alone in this, but it's not a popular opinion. But I think the X-Men franchise films are not even just the ones that everyone thinks about. I think they're very variable in terms of quality. There are some that are just okay. There are some that are really good. There are some that are X-Men Origins Wolverine. Let's just put it <laughs> that way. The New Mutants I didn't like, but apparently it's had a more positive reception since it's been on Disney+. Plus. So I'm interested to see what happens with re-watching that. But this is interesting because it was an attempt that I wouldn't even call it. People describe it as a soft reboot of the franchise. I think it's actually quite a hard reboot because they then had to retcon elements of it in the following films to make it fit the timeline. But like you say, it's really good. It really succeeds in revitalising what was a flagging franchise at that point. They'd really lost their moorings with it, I think. They were going nowhere. And this kind of, although the X-Men films themselves, after this, didn't quite maintain the standard, it did open the door for Deadpool and Logan, both of which were fantastic. The interesting thing is, when this came out originally, it was stylized as X First Class, not X-Men First Class. And it now is X-Men First Class. And I wonder what the logic was there. That's not the first time they've done that, because I remember going to see X-Men 2 at the cinema, and I think it actually still is this on the title card in the film. It's just called X2. They drop the men quite a lot, and I don't know if that's trying to be more inclusive, or whether they're just trying to make it cool, because the X makes it sound cool, as Bender from Futurama would say. But yeah, it's a roller coaster of a franchise, critically, I think it's fair to say. Because X-Men 1 was pretty good, X-Men 2 is very, very good. The Last Stand and X-Men Origins Wolverine, I think, the less is said about the better. I mean, X-Men Origins Wolverine was so bad that it got retconned in two different films. It got retconned out of existence in Days of Future Past and then it got retconned out of existence again at the end of Deadpool 2. When even the producers of the films acknowledge that they have to erase the canon, you know the films haven't been great. And to be honest, I loved Days of Future Past. I loved that the two sort of timelines, as it were, the two sets of characters came together. And I honestly think they probably could have ended it there because I haven't seen Apocalypse or Dark Phoenix or New Mutants, but from the sound of things, it ended more with a whimper than a bang. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And also re-watching this has kind of made me finally, finally realise why it is the Marvel Cinematic Universe works when other attempts to build franchises out of Marvel characters haven't done. It's that in the MCU, I mean, they talk quite openly about this on commentaries of things like Infinity War and so on. You know, when it looks like things are maybe going to get formulaic or stale, they've got the option of throwing in a wild card or the character. And apparently they think very long and hard about who is the most contrasting with who. Who's going to take this off in a completely new direction? Whereas with the X-Men franchise, I mean, it's the same that's happened with things like Blade. You've got the rights to Blade and that's it. In the X-Men, you can't bring in, say, Star-Lord or Doctor Strange or Black Panther to take things completely off into a new orbit. All you can do is bring in more X-Men. And the only one, really, who's that different 
different in any way to any of the rest of them is Deadpool. But I think they did an interesting thing here by taking known characters back to younger versions of themselves and giving them the opportunity to bring in, although they don't quite get this right, but we'll come back to characters from another era from the past. And that's kind of the best option they had, the best thing they could do there, I think. Yeah, it is. And it's sort of because you, you have the connection, you have the familiarity for audiences of these are characters that we know, or at least some of them. It's a difficult thing with prequels as well, because you know how they end up. So you know that they survive at the end of the film. So there's not as much jeopardy there. And there's also the problem that Fox had, where, like you say, the MCU have the rights to almost every Marvel character they have. Whereas at the time, 20th Century Fox only really had the X-Men. But yeah, so they just sort of drew from their own pool. And I guess if you have a team as big as the X-Men with as many characters and as many mutants, then why would you reach elsewhere and make things overcomplicated? Just draw more from the same universe, I guess. I remember going into it kind of the same way that I went into when they rebooted Star Trek. You know, you go in and you say, I can't wait to see each of these characters be introduced. You know, you meet Beast and he's in his human form. And so you're thinking about, are they going to give him his blue fur in this film or are they planning something more long term? You know, I found it really intriguing to sort of see their origins done in a way that actually paid off and actually made sense. Although going back to retcons, there were a couple of retcons in here from X-Men 3 that I can remember. I remember going in and seeing Moira McTaggart and wondering why she didn't have a Scottish accent, which definitely annoyed me a little bit. And also there was a sort of retcon of how Charles ends up in his wheelchair as well, from what I can remember. Because I think is it in X-Men 3 where he goes to visit a young Jean Grey and he's not in his wheelchair at that point. He's still got the use of his legs. And in this, it's 1962 and he's in the wheelchair by the end of the film. So yeah, it seemed like, I don't know if there was talk between the producers of the franchise and the writers of the film or whether they just decided that we're just going to ignore what happened the last time and do our own thing. But I honestly think that this is the better version of it. I do too. And mentioning Beast is quite interesting because it reminded me that I was very, very confused when I was really young by the fact that in the UK Spider-Man, they ran the original 60s X-Men strips as a backup feature. And in that, you know, Hank McCoy's in his human form. Equally, at the same time, they were doing the new X-Men, which he'd pop in and out of in Mighty World of Marvel. And also, he was part of the Avengers at that point as well. And I remember distinctly the first issue of the Avengers that I saw him in. Him, Wonder Man and Scarlet Witch were going off to, I can't remember if it actually was Studio 54, but the disco. I remember <laughs> thinking initially, is Beast just wearing a costume because they're going out to a disco, you know, dressed up as this big blue furry guy. But when it became obvious he was in that form, I remember thinking for ages, how did that happen? How did he get like that? It was a long time before I found out. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but shall we just get out of the way? Because, you know, there's a lot to say in favour of this film. The two things about it that I, this is on a relative scale, but that I don't quite like about it, which is that this is a very minor niggle, really, because, you know, it all works in the context of the film, but it's set in 1962. You've got this mostly spot-on period detail. You've got that amazing soundtrack that sounds like a John Barry Cold War film soundtrack. Not even, I've seen a couple of places say it sounds like a James Bond score. It's more like something he would have done for, like, some British film about a nuclear submarine or whatever. And you've got those Sawbass-style credits, which are absolutely fantastic. But you've got contemporary pop records being used 
used in it and not in the kind of what are they doing their thing they're like kind of on the soundtrack as well as that the younger mutants in it kind of behave like teenagers from a modern film not the way you'd expect teenagers in the 60s to behave and both of those things just very slightly jarred with me I can see why they did it but it felt a bit like oh guys you've got it right this far don't go down the boat that rocked route well nobody should ever do that under any (laughs) circumstances I mean to be fair in this one it was more the submarine that rocked I hadn't thought of that but that's a really good point especially when you have people like Jennifer Lawrence in it she can do sort of period acting you know she's very good at this she's been in a couple of films like that it is interesting I hadn't even thought of that especially in the scene where they're um, sort of having the party at the CIA sort of apartment that's been set up for them I hadn't even clocked that but you're right I did have a couple of things with it the first thing we'll we'll talk about the music because the music is incredible and you mentioned that it was like a, a sort of spy film do you know who did the music for it the music was done by Henry Jackman who has done a whole bunch of Matthew Vaughn's films he's done a whole bunch of his but most notably for us on this podcast he did the scores for The Winter Soldier and Civil War so that I mean especially in the scene I mean there are so many scenes I've got a list of like my favourite sequences in the film and there's like four or five on here but one of my favourite moments in the entire thing and the one that left my mouth agape in the cinema was Magneto lifting the submarine out of the water from hanging outside the plane right at the end and the score at that bit is spectacular and it's one of the things I'd never noticed before in an X-Men film like obviously we talk about like the Avengers theme and the MCU and things like that there are very few other sort of non-MCU films you know maybe Spider-Man excluded where I actually think about the orchestral score and this was one last night I was going this is fantastic which is good because like you say the pop songs in it are a little jarring at times I did have a couple of things that I did notice let's get the negative things out of the way to start with the one thing that I did notice that they did was there's only one person of colour in the entire film and they kill him off which is a bit unfortunate I mean I know it's the 60s and you know I wasn't comfortable with that you know the, the sort of the trope of the black guy dies first which wasn't great Moira McTaggart not being Scottish obviously the sort of yeah the retcons and the continuity errors with X-Men 3 that was about it but yeah those were the only minor things that I had with it because I think the film overall is just brilliant I do have to say well my other point of contention that would be interesting to see your reaction to this given that you don't really know the comics as such is I really don't like what they did with Emma Frost she kind of just seems like cartoon evil sitting around in her pants a lot of the time and I can see what they were trying to do but it's got so little to do with how complex a character on so many levels she is in the comic book version it's almost like they were looking around for characters to include and they didn't actually read any X-Men with her in they found her appearing in you know one of the sort of team up sagas you just thought oh those few pages she's in that's what she's like and based it on that and January Jones is so good you know in things like Mad Men she's absolutely brilliant at these really nuanced difficult characters they could have given her so much more to work with and it just didn't work for me that's very interesting because I remember watching last night and thinking that she was quite a good character I mean she does kind of have the stereotyped sort of henchman role and she does have the sort of female companion to the villain at times the main thing that annoyed me was the fact you know just speaking as a scientist that she turns to diamond and her name is frost those are two completely different substances so you know (laughs) but yeah I thought her powers were good like I say I don't know the comics so I don't know how much of a complex character how much they left on the cutting room floor how much they left in the books this is the thing when you have a film like X-Men where it isn't just around one or two characters where you have a whole team in this case a sort of two teams where you're never going to have enough screen time to develop everyone properly and so some of the villains will become caricatures and will be simplified I thought she was alright as a casual cinema goer but you know maybe in a few years time if the MCU do their own incarnation maybe I will look back at it and go yeah she deserved more than that because I think 
think in Days of Future Past, I think Emma Frost is killed off off screen. I think there's a moment where the Sentinels or whatever Bolivar Trask's things are called at that point. I think Angel as well in this film, I think she is killed off in between First Class and Days of Future Past as well. So it seems like, once again, they had too many characters and not enough screen time. So they just wrote a couple out of the continuity, which is a real shame. And it does mean that, I guess this is a problem with all superhero films, where you have a character and you have a fantastic actor and you don't really get to see them again because there's just too many characters at that point. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, looking at the MCU itself, you do have to wonder how they're managing to do it. Because, you know, we've had characters come back in, like, obviously, Darcy and Jimmy Woo turned up in WandaVision. Kurt was in What If? Which I was astonished. I was not expecting <laughs> that. As was Betty Ross, the abominations back. What are they going to do with that huge volume of characters they built up in not just the TV shows, but some of the past films as well? That You know, they are going to get in somehow, but how and how would there be enough room for them? I think that's why the TV shows are such a genius move because you do get more time with these characters and these, you know, sort of C-list characters that if you had only two hours of film time, you just wouldn't have the time with anymore. And I do wonder, I do fear that if they ever do an Avengers 5 at some point, how many of these characters will just have to fall by the wayside for the sake of running time? Because they can't just keep introducing more characters expect the audience to, you know, have great moments with all of them. It is something that they're just going to have to learn to juggle and, you know, they've been doing it well enough so far, but we'll just have to see as it gets harder and harder as the years go on. Because we've had, technically, at least three origin films for them in recent memory. Watching this again, that was at the back of my mind thinking, it's been done, people have seen it, too much of it, so surely they will be looking for a way to just bring these characters in without any sort of messing about. I like that, because I I think what they did with Spider-Man in the MCU was really good, and we've immediately gone back to talking about the MCU again. The thing about the X-Men and about mutants is that more than almost any other sort of supernatural creature in Marvel's comics, the mutants are a worldwide thing. You know, they happen all over the world to large swathes of the human population. So it's not like Iron Man or Captain America where it's one person. This is something that will happen to the entire world, much like sort of Thanos' snap or something like that. So the idea that suddenly they're just going to have a film and suddenly, you know, sort of 5% of the entire world is mutants all of a sudden and they just don't address it. I don't think they have that option in the MCU timeline and in the continuity. That's why I think when Kevin Feige talks about we're going to have mutants, you have to have mutants in order to have the X-Men, you know, unless you want to sort of say that they're all inhumans all of a sudden, which, you know, no, they have that option. No, don't do but... that, no. <laughs> yeah. So I think I can completely understand from an audience point of view, it's not something that we want to see yet again. And they did it very successfully with Spider-Man. But I think just for the nature of their origin more than any other, I think it has to happen organically in terms of mutants arising. Unless they suddenly just retcon it and say that, you know, Thanos' snap suddenly caused mutants to appear or something like that. Because, you know, the Infinity Stones are the MacGuffin of all MacGuffins. They could do whatever they wanted with the Infinity Stones and say, oh yeah, it was because of that. It was because of Thanos' snap. That's why some of the world is now mutated all of a sudden. They do have options at their disposal. We'll just have to see which one they go for. Speaking of so many potential production headaches, it is interesting with this that, you know, pretty much everything we covered in this, there's been some dramatic element to the backstory to it. You know, there's been a studio fight or a director that got fired, two people who wrote a script years before the MCU existed who were kind of ousted because they didn't like the changes made to it, or a character that had to be written out at the last minute because they realised they could just stop everything, you know, that sort of thing. But with this, I've read into the production history and it is literally just they thought of some ideas for the next film and it developed on and not because originally it was going to be Origins Magneto and they described it as the pianist meets the X-Men, which nobody really 
once, to be honest <laughs> with you. But just sort of like they moved the idea on from there, then moved it on to something else, and just ended up with this good film. And in a way, that was a little bit disappointing that you know there was no turbulence behind the film so good. It's just for once everything just aligned, and they made yeah. something that really worked. I mean, the penis versus the X Men is something that you know that's a crossover and a half. I would want to see. <laughs> but yeah, am I right in thinking that because it's been a long time since I've seen it, X Men One starts the same way as X-Men First Class where it features a young Eric Lencher at the gates of Auschwitz sort of wrenching the gates open. They obviously applicated that for this and I do wonder if they were going to spend more time with young Eric Lencher sort of post-World War II because one of my favourite moments of the film, I mean I have a lot of them, but one of my favourite moments was Michael Fassbender hunting down Nazis at the start of the film. You know, tracing down Kevin Bacon and his gang to try and get revenge for his mother's death and for his torture as a kid. I would honestly have loved to watch an entire film of that, of him sort of basically doing what he did in Inglorious Bastards. I can understand why they would want to do what they did in terms of, because I think they kind of realised that the whole team dynamic wasn't working too well when it got to X-Men The Last Stand and they just had too many characters and they didn't know what to do with them. So they decided if we break it down and focus on one character, then that will make our film better. And then it didn't. They ended up with Wolverine. I can kind of see, because what would they have done after that? X-Men Origins Mystique, maybe? Or X-Men Origins Xavier? You know, there's, you know, let's be honest, less interesting characters you know Magneto is the one with the most interesting backstory sort of in terms of his motivations and everything like that so yeah I'm also wondering because like you say if they had an idea that they wanted to adapt Days of Future Past but realised that they would have to introduce a whole bunch of back in time X-Men in order to make it work and so they thought well let's do a film introducing those characters and then we can bring them all together for our big adaptation of Days of Future Past. Well we should just touch on you briefly mentioned there Kevin Bacon Earth's Mightiest Hero according to the Guardians of the Galaxy is fantastic yes. in this there were a couple of people I had to persuade to be in this apparently including January Jones who were a bit sort of don't really want to do a superhero film but they managed to persuade them but Kevin Bacon they deliberately cast him against type because they wanted somebody you know not just to be the standard kind of Nazi in hiding villain on the run but you actually find out they're completely in control of everything and they're not running at all because you know that's a very cliche character dude there were even some of them in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D to be honest they work but they are in that cliche mould but he completely undercuts it he said he didn't watch any films on a similar theme at all he just thought I'm going to play him a bit like Hugh Hefner and the important thing is not to look like an Austin Powers villain those two really unique ways of approaching it really worked yeah I was really impressed with them because I'd never I'd not really seen much of Kevin Bacon before this I was trying to think of what else I'd seen him in because he doesn't really strike me as a kind of villain type you know when you think about Footloose and things like that <laughs> but he is really good in this and he plays Sinister surprisingly well I think and it's interesting that you bring up the Austin Powers thing because that is something that any sort of spy or thriller set in the 60s now has to try and avoid is because Austin Powers sort of soaked itself in that kind of 60s culture they could have easily done a film set in the 60s in which you know Kevin Bacon was a bit more let's be honest Kevin Bacony, and it might not have worked as well but he plays it straight he speaks in full German at the start and then later on he sort of adapts an American accent but it comes up every once in a while even when he puts on the telepath shielding helmet which is the dorkiest bit of superhero kit I think there's ever been and you know when we look at things like the classic Loki outfit there's some contenders for that he still manages to make it look really good especially when he's doing the stuff where he's absorbing all the energy and there's sort of multiple sort of ripples of him it's all done really well and I think he's I honestly think looking back on it I think this might be the best thing I've seen him in or his best role you know at least until he started doing the EE adverts obviously but yeah I was really impressed 
obsessed with Kevin Bacon as a villain, and I didn't think I'd be seeing that before this. Well, that brings me on to the main reason I love this film so much was exactly what you just talked about, in that, you know, it is set in the 60s, and generally people get the 60s very, very wrong, in that in films it tends to be everything is kind of... It's a bit like time getting mashed together in a not-very-good episode of Doctor Who or something, you know, where everything's happening at once, and the whole of the 60s happens at once, and, you know, you'd be in 1962 and you'll have hippies saying far out groovy man there'll be somebody listening to a record that didn't come out until 1969 or that sort of thing but here they've really nailed that early 60s america from just before the 60s started happening there's a tremendous book called psychedelia and other colors by rob chapman which refutes the whole idea that you know the psychedelic 60s all came from drugs and you know it does discuss the fact that obviously the beatles did take lsd and so on but in the background of that you know he discusses over here you've got the whole culture of got the bbc radio channels trying to fill hours with science fiction with sound effects by the radiophonic workshop bbc2 starts putting weird stuff on late at night but in america you've got this very kind of buttoned up post-war world and then suddenly there's big exciting films on the cinema the sound and light shows like touring shows that i knew nothing about and he mentions marvel comics as well whereas you know before that before the fantastic four and the hulk arrived it being you know not denigrating dc but it's all quite kind of detective-y a bit respectable america a bit out of time maybe by that point and then suddenly marvel arrives with huge splurging graphics all over the place but this is set in that moment just before all that starts happening and they avoid the temptation to do anything different i mean part of the thing is that life generally in it looks a bit boring and that they liven it up with things like i know we weren't quite satisfied with the way the party goes it's more like a nasty culture kind of thing but it is that they've sneaked they've not sneaked off to have a party they've had it inside without anyone noticing but it's like you can feel the boredom that's around them that compels them to do that it really is and that's a very good point actually because this is 1962 this is pre-Beatlemania this is pre-James Bond films this is pre-Summer of Love and all that so this is kind of sort of the 50s kind of continuing over it's very grey it's very uneventful and it is very tense this is one of the reasons why I love this film is that it connects you to that time period and to this story and this universe using real world events. So when they talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis and they show actual John F. Kennedy's TV address and things like that, it makes you feel like you're connected to this world because this is stuff that you recognise. And I think that more so than any of the other time periods that we visit in the X-Men universe, I mean, I say that, I haven't seen Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix, so I can't really comment on those, but I feel like this fits the time period so much more than Days of Future Past does in the 70s or X-Men Origins Wolverine does in, in any of Wolverine's younger days. This feels feels like you're in 1962 it feels like you're, you're sitting there watching jfk on the television with them i mean you don't blame these kids for wanting a bit of excitement you know when you see the sort of yeah just the sort of grayness of the world around them i mean for a long time the only bit of color in the film is really in las vegas when moira mctaggart is tracking her colonel other than that it's all sort of it's oxford university it's cia buildings and it's just a lot of political tension you know it's russian forests it's all very 50s actually and when you say when you talk about things like comics talk doing very sensible kind of it's almost hangover from the noir era the sort of Hitchcock kind of films there's not really been the explosion of culture that the 60s was yet this is kind of on the cusp of that and obviously I mean they would have chosen the Cuban Missile Crisis because of the nuclear connection they can make it relate to mutants in some way so they were kind of sort of anchored to this time period but they make it work really well and they make it work really believably and especially considering
considering that, you know, they connect it right back to Magneto in the camps in World War II. Yeah, I think they absolutely nail it. I think it's brilliant. When I think of other superhero films set in the past, literally two months after this came out, we got the first Avenger. And then when you think of other films like Captain Marvel is the only other one that springs to mind in terms of sort of nailing its time period as well as it does. And that's mostly to do with the music, which is actually, funnily enough, the one thing this film doesn't do that well. But in terms of superhero films that double as period pieces, I do think X-Men First Class is probably the best one of the lot in terms of its portrayal. Well, we've got to mention something that you've already mentioned in passing, which is the Hugh Jackman cameo as Wolverine. It is the greatest cameo in cinema history, and I will die on this hill. It's impossible to even explain, but just the timing of it is so perfect. It's almost like a kind of atonement for X-Men Origins Wolverine as well, reconnecting with what people like about the character. It really is, and it what is it, a 10-second redemption for him? Because honestly, after... I mean, if you think about it, X-Men Origins Wolverine could have killed the franchise, really. Especially when you consider that X-Men The Last Stand had ended with so many of the characters sort of dying as well. When you think of that, I think of X-Men Origins Wolverine as being a bit like Batman and Robin in the way it was the fourth film in the series and people didn't know if it would ever survive and then they decided to reboot it. It's also the fact it takes place in the middle of a montage as well. So there's music going on and I love a good recruitment montage. You know, Ocean's Eleven is one of my favourite films and that one's got a hell of a montage in it. It's so perfect because it's kind of blink and you'll miss it but he only says three words in the entire film and it's probably the funniest line in the entire thing and I love the fact that Professor X and Magneto just walk up to him take his answer and just go yep fair enough and just walk out It's incredible. And, you know, especially considering, I don't know if Hugh Jackman agreed to it because that was the only line, he was only going to be in it for 10 seconds or something like that, or whether he already knew that there was going to be another X-Men in which he would have a major role. Who knows what his motivations were for agreeing to that? Maybe he just thought it was, you know, as funny as we thought it was. But yeah, I cannot think of any other... I don't want to say he steals the show because the entire film is brilliant, but that's the one moment that makes me laugh more than any other, and possibly the entire X-Men franchise. It's just it's perfect it's absolutely perfect excuse me I'm Eric Lentra Charles Xavier don't fuck yourself The other thing that I really, really loved about it was, you've kind of alluded to something similar talking about the helmet in it, but, you know, something that the MCU has got right that a lot of other things haven't is the way they will make what were sometimes now embarrassing old designs look good. All the way from in the start of the first Iron Man film where Tony Stark builds the first Iron Man, which is based on the original Iron Man from the comics, which I remember laughing when I first saw that when I was a kid <laughs> thinking, you know, children were easily entertained back then, but it actually looks quite frightening it looks like it could do some serious damage you know the guy shoots it and the bullet rebounds back at him yeah they've done all kinds of things like that where the costume just wasn't feasible like they did this a lot with characters like Luke Cage and Iron Fist and Jessica Jones they had you know a scene where they'd accidentally be in something resembling their classic costume or you know we'll find it somewhere and go oh my god no doesn't Hellcat try on the Hellcat costumes as you've got to be kidding me you know they do things like that they make things look good 
while back there was allegedly some concept art for Wonder Man floating around, which are combined with his red safari jacket and the t-shirt with a W on into something that looked quite good yeah. for this day and age. I've no doubt when they did Fantastic Four, those costumes would be really easy to make into something really good. The original X-Men costumes from the 60s always looked, I mean, when I first saw those reprinted strips, they always looked a bit kind of, that's a 60s idea for superhero. There's something about them, the way they were just so uniform, such bold colours. But in this, which didn't really often happen in non-MCU Marvel films and series, they made those costumes look like really stylish. They really did. Because I remember watching even the 90s X-Men sort of cartoon. I think it's particularly Wolverine is in his bright yellow sort of spandex suit. I wonder if this is maybe from Superman starting it and the fact that in the original comics you needed to have bright colours because that's what the ink and paint allowed you to do. You know, you couldn't have complex detailed designs because that wouldn't mean having to draw them on every single page. So I think that's why most of the colours are bright and simple and things like that and that's why they've become the stereotyped superhero costume. I mean, you mentioned those ones. I think the most obvious example of one that got reworked into something far better was Scarlet Witch in WandaVision, which they had as a Halloween costume, which I thought was fantastic. That reference there and Vision as well, I suppose. But yeah, I genuinely wasn't sure if they were going to be able to pull this off and make it look not dorky. I mean, making people wear a uniform is one thing in all these films in which you want everyone to be their own character, to have their own sort of look and everything like that. Making them all wear a single one-piece uniform and then making it bright yellow when you're supposed to be sort of undercover or stealthy or something like that. Having said that, they were going to land in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis in a giant black plane. So, you know, I think subtlety went out the window. But yeah, they managed to make it really good and they made it canonically necessary when Charles says, he says something like, well, none of us can deflect bullets or something. I can't remember exactly what his line was, but there was a reason why they all needed to wear them. And yeah, they made it work really well. And it kind of mirrors the sort of the way that the film develops. It starts off, it's almost in black and white at the start when you've got the very bleak sort of, you've got the shot of Auschwitz and you've got a young Eric being threatened with his mother's life unless he moves the coin for Klaus Schmidt. And over the course of the film, you know, you've got very dark Oxford and it's when they recruit the mutants and they do the, what I've got in my notes here in all capitals as the Downton Abbey training montage. <laughs> where the film suddenly gets a bit more colour to it. You know, you've got blue skies, you've got the beach during the missile crisis, you know, you've got the bright blue sea and everything like that, and it feels like the film sort of lifts up and gets some optimism and some sort of hope as the film goes on. And, you know, when you've got Charles walking around in his big long coat and then by the end of the film, everyone is in their bright yellow outfits on the beach, it builds to a climax sort of visually as well as narratively. And it's just, it's so, I keep using the same words, it's so spectacular, it's so well done. Exactly. And the other amazing thing about this film is, I know everyone's talking about, you know, because the X-Men are obviously going to be the MCU, as we've said a couple of times now. People are speculating on how they bring Wolverine in and Rogue and Kitty Pride and so on. But it's actually made me more want to see the classic X-Men, even though they're not in this. It's actually made me want the human-style beast and the original nerdy Cyclops and Jean Grey when she was Marvel Girl. I kind of want them now, which I wasn't even thinking about until I rewatched this. Well, I mean, it depends if they get the original original cast back or not as someone who's been told that i look like nicholas holt for most of my life i'm not entirely <laughs> sure that i could do with having a human beast back anytime <laughs> soon and the thing is that you know because they've got this young cast in who are all still you know relatively young there's no reason why they couldn't you know they can just wave their multiverse wand and just say oh yeah these characters are here now you know there's nothing stopping them from doing that and i think we should actually talk about the cast because the cast they've got is honestly insane when you look back at it considering what these people have gone on to do since then you've got james mcavoy michael 
Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Nicholas Holt, particularly Jennifer Lawrence, who went on right after she finished this, she went on to start work on The Hunger Games. And, you know, a year later, she'd won an Oscar. And then obviously her star power kind of commanded that she get bigger roles than maybe Mystique would have gotten otherwise. Yeah. And Michael Fassbender, I think, is the star of this film. Like some of his performances, particularly particularly in the scene where he's moving the satellite dish and just the expression on his face as he's digging into all the pain from his past. It's just he's superb at that. I will say one thing, though. When he lands on the beach after he's killed Sebastian Shaw, he goes full Irish accent. Whatever German accent he may have had over the film going on, he is half German. So, you know, he is half Irish, half German. But for some reason, he goes full Irish by the end of the film, which always makes me really laugh. But yeah, I think this cast is brilliant, particularly, like I say, at the start when Michael Fassbender is hunting down the Nazis and he's speaking French to the Swiss banker, he's speaking Spanish to the Argentinian bartender. One of the things that I love about this film, and it's something that I've noticed a lot more in 21st century Hollywood compared to previous films, is that films actually embrace talking in other languages. You know, they don't just have talking English with a funny accent. As someone who recently has been watching a lot of old James Bond films for obvious reasons, I was watching Goldeneye a few days ago and the Russian Defence Ministry meet and they're all talking in English with Russian accents. And that's something that I think has only really in the past sort of 10, 15 years have they actually started doing that and the actors are actually training and talking these languages. Especially in Shang-Chi, for instance, you know, the first 10 minutes of the film are entirely in Mandarin. And I don't think we would have got that when the X-Men films first started. I think this cast is magnificent. I'm struggling to think of anyone that I think is actually, you know, actually I thought wasn't that good in it. And I think there's no reason why they couldn't bring them back if they wanted to. Well, one thing I really wanted to say, which I think kind of shows just how seriously they were taking evoking that moment of time is normally I'm not keen when actors go off on big flights of fancy about their art and inspiration. I much prefer it when somebody says, I played him a bit like Hugh Hefner. That sort of thing appeals to me more. But yeah. apparently, James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender had decided that the relationship between Charles Xavier and Magneto was a bit like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, as in the two diametrically opposed views about how they progressed their cause. But that in 1962, they hadn't diverged yet. And they went and studied what the relationship yeah. between those two was like in the early 60s before there was that. It wasn't really a schism, but, you know, that kind of division in their paths. And what an incredible... I mean, you know, you're on slightly dubious ground saying we played it like two black civil rights pioneers. Although, you know, the X-Men was kind <laughs> of inspired by the civil rights movement. You know, the original 60s iteration was. But that is quite a length to go to, I think, to make sure that you fully inhabiting the world that you were playing in. Particularly also if they're studying two people from the time period as well. It's something that those characters throughout their entire lives, they're sort of opposed to each other in terms of the methods, but they're both fighting for mutant rights. It's just that Magneto wants mutant superiority in a way. So sometimes they have to come together to fight a common enemy, but at the same time one of them is a lot more diplomatic and the other one is a lot more authoritarian. And I think seeing that develop over the course of the film, because I think one of the most interesting lines in the film is right at the end after Sebastian Shaw, he's in the nuclear reactor actor with Magneto and he does this monologue this sort of you know they're never going to accept us for who we are and all this sort of stuff and Eric kills him and then says I agree with everything you've just said but you killed my mother it's a really interesting thing of you know he agrees with him but also he puts his own motivations above that you know he's taking revenge and then saying I completely agree with everything you say and I'm going to take over your work basically it's kind of interesting how they have to kind of rein it in because at the end of this film Magneto was basically Magneto and he's sort of starting on his mission or whatever it is and then obviously for days of future past they have to rein him in a bit because they need him to be back on side and be one of the sort of
sort of anti-heroes, as it were, and then they have to do that again for the next film and the next film. He's never really the villain of any of the later films because there's someone else who has to sort of take that role. And so he is kind of... Magneto doesn't really get the chance to be... Certainly not Michael Fassbender's Magneto. He doesn't get the chance to be the villain that he really deserves to in any of the later films because then it's Bolivar Trask and then it's Apocalypse and then it's Jean Grey and they're the villains of the next three films. So Michael Fassbender kind of is reduced to this sort of second-rate villain slash anti-hero role for the next three films and he doesn't get the chance to go full villain which is a real shame because I would love to see him do that really. There was one thing I did want to bring up because I noticed this. I talked about the training montage earlier. We talked about the yellow X-Men suits but during the training montage for some reason all of them are wearing the same grey tracksuit and I have no idea what's going on there. They're all living at Xavier's mansion and maybe he just has a wardrobe full of different grey <laughs> tracksuits for every shape and size but did they have a sponsorship deal on? Was this because the uniforms weren't ready yet? Why is Havoc's tracksuit the only one that's got short sleeves? Is it just to show off his muscles? You know, I just, I have so many questions from that one training montage. Why the grey track? Is it a Rocky reference? I really want to know what's going on there because once we go and watch it again, go and watch the training montage, they are all in this sort of bland grey tracksuit and I don't understand I'm why. I'm keen to go and look up and see if tracksuits were actually a thing at that point in time. It's quite possible they weren't. I just, I kind of wish that, you know, right for the big finale when they were all on the plane and they were all diving out in front of the Cuban Missile Crisis, they, they were all still in the grey tracksuits. You know, the budget's not quite there yet. We haven't got, the uniforms went ready. You know, Beast was dealing with his thing and didn't have time to finish the uniforms. We're just, we're in the grey tracky bottoms and go. One of the things that I really liked was the fight choreography for uh, using the superpowers because this is something that's really hard to get right. Is obviously anyone can choreograph a good fight, you know, particularly if it's just sort of martial arts or anything like that. But when you have superpowers involved, you have to get really creative and really inventive. And some of the things that they did, particularly with Magneto's powers, I found really, really good and really fun. When he's breaking into the Russian compound and he coils up the Russian soldier in the barbed wire like a giant slinky, you know, I just thought that was really, really fun. Or when he's in Argentina and he throws the knife into the bartender and then pulls it back to stab the guy with, things like that. I love that sort of choreography. And you see it as well in the fight over the missile crisis, you know, I, I keep calling it that because I don't know where it's like, the, the fleet, the Russian fleet and the American fleet, the fight in midair between Banshee and Angel as well. It doesn't last very long, but the sort of the mid-flight choreography of the two of them sort of going at it, I thought was really cool as well. And that's when the orchestral score is sort of brought to its maximum. And I, the fight choreography in this, which is something that not all superhero films really truly nail, I thought was really good in this. There was an interesting thing. We haven't touched on the arc that Mystique goes through in this film, where her and Hank have this talk about what it means to sort of be your true self, as it were, and especially with Magneto telling Raven that, you know, not her only beautiful form is her blue form, but that's the version that he wants to see. And we actually get a cameo from Rebecca Romain from the original X-Men at one point, which is really cool, because yeah, they also retcon that by saying, oh, I suppose they don't retcon it, because it is part of the comics that Mystique ages very slowly, I suppose. But yeah, they have this debate and this sort of question about being your true self, accepting who you are and not trying to quote unquote fix yourself, which is a good message to take through. And then especially when Hank then tries to inject himself with what he thinks is a cure for the things to make them look human and then it backfires on him and he turns into Beast. It's kind of undercut by Mystique saying at the end mutant and proud, which implies that she thinks that her form is superior to everyone else's. But I do like the message of, you know, it's, it's kind of the Lady Gaga message of you're born this way, you know, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. I quite like that. And that sort of serves as her art. Because one of the things I did notice that I hadn't noticed before was right at the beginning when Charles is in Oxford and he's at the bar with Raven 
he keeps ordering her soft drinks to make sure that she doesn't get drunk and doesn't accidentally reveal herself and he's there's sort of almost a controlling aspect to that even though they're supposed to be brother and sister and they're supposed to be friendly he's keeping her from revealing who she really is and that sort of spurs her arc for the whole thing and I thought that was really well done well speaking of sticking to who you are unapologetically that brings me around to my closing question which is Ray Wise who was the Secretary of State in X-Men First Class was also the not entirely dissimilar rocks and oil president you joked in Agent Carter so David which of those two was best I mean I'm always going to go with Agent Carter because anything (laughs) to do with Agent Carter is the best that was really fun was because Ray Wise I know Ray Wise because he was the president in one of my favourite video games from the late 90s which was Command and Conquer Red Alert 2 so anytime he shows up he's kind of one of those actors that shows up in everything for about 30 seconds and then he disappears again (laughs) so yeah I was uh, was really happy to see him well it's always good to bring one of these back to Agent Carter so thank you David thank you and Excelsior thanks very much Tim cheers If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of Discord Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book, Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.